This is another Bottle Down on Co-op Radio, KOOP Hornsby, Austin, 91.7 FM, and KOOP.org. I'm your host, Mark Rayshap, here to appreciate wines from all over the world and to talk with Austin's leading wine professionals, from winemaker to sommelier and everyone in between. Now it's time to put another bottle down. Good afternoon, Austin. Thank you so much for tuning in. We've got a really excellent show for you today. My name is Mark Rayshap, and this is Another Bottle Down, where we talk about wine in the wine industry, although today is a very special show because we have uh, two guests who are non-wine industry folks. We've got uh, an economist with the Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Program. His name is Daniel Chavez, and he's going to be talking about a really interesting event that he has coming up, which is called... Uh, it's it's a, a workshop to help Austin small acreage growers sell locally. And we've got Chris Seals, who is a distiller and CEO of Still Austin. Uh, he is live in the studio. Um, and thank you so much, guys, for tuning in. And and uh, we're going to bring Daniel in here and uh, and talk about his event and all the, the ins and outs to uh, the economy of small-scale farmers. Daniel, are you there? Yes, I'm right here. Can uh, you hear me? Yeah, you're there uh, out in Texas A&M, right? Out in College Station? Yes. Awesome. Out here in College Station. Cool. Well, 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 thank you so much for for being with us. Tell us a little bit about what you do as uh, a, an agricultural economist, and then and then we'll get into uh, the event that you're doing. Well, um, the term agriculture economist is uh, basically I'm an economist that deals mostly with uh, the agricultural sector which is uh, roughly uh, 10% of the GDP of the country. So everything that we can talk about, food, food service, food products, that is uh, part of the scope of, uh, within, of what agriculture economics is. And so, so you deal with the, econom- uh, the economics of really large-scale growers uh, as well as small, small, tiny growers who are just try- trying to grow the best produce that they have, and then they, they think, hey, we can really uh, create an offering to local, to local restaurants, et cetera, right? Exactly. So uh, we do, uh, with the AgriLife Extension Service, and we offer uh, services to um, large-scale growers in terms of policy, policy implications, and also how to maximize their profits, how to maximize their, their loyalty in the brand, how to get uh, better relationships in terms of uh, customers and sales when it comes to, to the produce that, they, uh, that they're growing, that they're producing. 
Right. And I, I think it's, uh, it's wonderful because um, uh, the work that you're doing now with, with small growers, uh, you know, there's so many challenges of growing beautiful produce here in Central Texas and, and, and in Texas in general. And then, uh, so th- there's challenges associated with that. But then uh, once you have this wonderful produce, there are also challenges in getting it into the right restaurants, into the right hands, right? That, that's, that's a huge thing that I think the public doesn't necessarily think about. That is one thing. Another thing that we also want to to collaborate and contribute to is uh, the carbon footprint of how we're producing. Because right now, having to truck, say, your strawberries all the way from California, when you could grow them in the panhandle, then uh, that's the kind of thing that we're also trying to, to tap into. And this is our collaborative effort, not only from us in the economic section, but also in horticulturist and, uh, and uh, specialist on genetics, specialist on, on management of uh, insects and plants and pests. So uh, it's a joint effort trying to do all of us together through the extension service, trying to make sure that what we're doing uh, makes sense right. and, uh, for, for all of us, not just the growers, not just the consumers, but also for the ones that will take over once we're done. Yeah, that, that's a that's a great a great uh, point because uh, the environment is such a is such a, a massive topic now, and uh, really the the environmental impact of most uh, produce and vegetables and and indeed the wine industry, which I focus on here, is the transportation and the shipping costs. Right? Is that is that um, the the vast majority of the of the carbon footprint of growing food? Surprisingly enough, uh, and contrary to the intuition or, or the word of mouth, it is uh, transportation, the biggest problem that, uh, in terms of environment and in terms of, of the, the harms to the environment that that agricultural sector brings, it's basically transportation. It's the carbon footprint of having to truck and ship uh, the inputs and the outputs of the, of, the, of the produce industry and of the food service industry in general. Right, right, and so um, so you're 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 trying to uh, then spawn this industry of restaurants buying local to limit those those transportation costs, and that was the motivation from this workshop, right? So this is this workshop is for small growers, and it and we should mention that it is happening at nine a.m. on September twenty sixth at the AgriLife Extension Office, which is sixteen hundred B Smith Road in Austin, uh, and and it's open. To to uh, small growers and also restaurants as well, right? It's actually open to anybody who's interested in the dynamics of uh, grocery, food service, uh, restaurants, and the dynamics that happen in both sides of of the coin, both in what uh, contributes from the buyer side and from the seller side. Right. So we believe that it fits better to, to small growers and restaurant owners, but actually every person that feels that they have an interest in, in any of these uh, moving parts in this system is yeah. more than welcome to join. Yeah. Well, I, it's, 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 I think, really important in my mind that we have a, a, an awareness of this um, and that also restaurants, you know, restaurants will cite where they're getting veg- vegetables and fruit from and produce uh, if the public is demanding it, and that is a huge competitive advantage. That is, uh, and, and that happens with, with wine, too. I mean, you know, you could buy, say, a pound of broccoli. You, you have a lot of choices of where to buy certain produce. 
Um, and oftentimes the, the local stuff, even though we have less transportation costs, it sometimes is a little bit more expensive because all of the costs of the, the small grower, right? How, how, how do you coach uh, growers and, and restaurants to kind of get over that price issue of that it might, it might be a little bit more expensive, but you're paying for something that is a lot higher quality? Well, uh, as the economist and, uh, and as marketeers, <laughs> which is right. our area of, of research, then uh, that's how market ready. Uh, something I must talk about this training program that we're conducting in Austin is that this is a not so new initiative. We've been doing it across the country. It's something that we've also done with other universities in the South, like uh, Kentucky, LSU, um, Georgia, Florida. There are other universities also involved in this. And uh, the program itself is trying to address the development risk and the relationships that small farmers and ranchers have. So the idea like, is one of the things is one, what you just mentioned, Mark, which is, uh, okay, how do you come up with a way to, to really have value and not just price? Right. Okay, what is it in there for me as a buyer to buy something here, local, grown locally, which might be more expensive, but what is it that I'm getting out of it? Right. So kind of making that value statement is part of what the market-ready training program is all about. Right. And, uh, and there is more information. Uh, I will mention uh, a couple websites. So there is the website of the, um, of the Texas A&M Extension Program, which is travis-tx.tamu.edu. Uh, and that's the Travis County uh, uh, AgriLife Extension office, and then also for this uh, food market maker, which is which is part of this program, is the tx.foodmarketmaker.com, uh, and you, and there's a lot lot of information there. So so uh, folks who are listening out there can check out those websites. Um, I want to uh, you know I want to mention some of the things that you've been quoted as to uh, saying what this what this what this uh, workshop is all about relationship building building, product packaging, labeling and pricing, delivery and storage, uh, invoicing, quality assurance, and insurance requirements. I mean, these are all things that are hugely important, important to, you know, supply chain and product. And, and, and like you say, they're, they're, it's something that the public should really be aware of as well, right? I mean, this concept of, of relationships between the, the, the restaurants and the growers, I mean, massively important in today's day and age, right? Massively important in any market and uh, every specialized literature in any of the fields that have to do with consumer behavior will show you that uh, the relationship is some very large intangible that has a huge value in any kind of business relationship. How I, I know that there's there's a challenge that we have in the wine industry uh, of you a consumer might think oh you only make a thousand cases of wine or or a small limited amount of product uh, but sometimes that's actually a challenge to overcome whereas some uh, restaurants or some retailers might say you're making too little right I mean I, I'm gonna I'm gonna run out of produce or I'm gonna run out of product and that is a negative for me so I'm not gonna do business I mean is that something that you see in our farms too small or, or, or yes. <laughs> yeah. we, we see we see a mixture of both because then uh, see the, the market ready modules then there's two of them one of them is actually how to sell wholesale okay. and then this one considering that Travis County and its surroundings uh, have a different market to sell to then uh, this one is uh, more geared towards selling to food service buyers and restaurants and small groceries 
Um, but yes, that challenge is there. It, uh, it's very salient. Uh, and this is something of what we try to 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 make across to make the point go across that uh, you need to choose your market correctly. Yeah. Okay. If you are able to produce a thousand bottles of wine, then you might not really be someone who wants to sell to U.S. Foods, for example, or someone who wants to sell to to Kroger or H-E-B. Maybe something different, something right. that has a market for itself on its own. Yeah. Maybe something like uh, your your local restaurant or your local winery, maybe partnerships. And, and these are the kind of things that we, on a case-by-case basis, we can touch on. Yeah. Uh, but uh, general overview is, is part of what we do. Yeah. So, so you, see, you see what's going on on a very large scale, um, most of the U.S. You were talking about partner states, et cetera. How, how do you think Austin is doing? Is Austin a good place for this? I mean, you're doing the workshop because you think that it can yeah. grow more, right? But, yeah. but, but yeah, how? Actually, Austin, um, <laughs> we've done the, these market-ready trainings. We've done them in the state of Texas. I mean, um, our, our group, our research group has done them in other, in other parts. Actually, we're conducting one in McAllen. Um, because that's more like the producer side of it, so in, down in the valley. So we're going down to the valley this week. Next week, then we're doing this in Austin, and because these are the the places where this could have a stronger impact. So to answer specifically your question, then what I could say is that yes, definitely, we see Austin as a city with a lot of growth, with a lot of potential, and uh, at the rate at which Austin and Austin's uh, taste for new things and more things is growing, then we need to to be able to cope with it, to be able to be ready for it. Otherwise, we're going to end up importing lettuce from Arizona, for all I know. Right. How, um, you know, I can name off the the top of my head about five small growers. You you talk kind of about this idea of uh, a small grower. What what do you define a small grower um, as? And and, uh, how many do you think are in Austin? I mean, I try and really celebrate the local food scene here. Um, You know, if if people aren't, if restaurants aren't necessarily dealing with, you know, uh, Johnson's or some of the bigger, bigger small guys, right? right? And I'm I'm a huge Johnson's fan, but um, yeah, are we breaking up there? Uh, we'll see if that that works it out. Actually, I might take this opportunity to uh, introduce and bring Chris in. Uh, Chris Seals is co-founder and CEO of Still Austin. Chris, I'd like to have you just comment on that. What what you've been you've been listening in, and and uh, you are trying as uh, the the CEO of Still Austin in the first uh, Austin urban distillery since uh, since prohibition you are trying to find these small uh, plots of land to deal with grains right and and so w- what we're talking about affects you in the beverage industry as well as in the restaurant field absolutely mark um, and uh, Daniel I really appreciate a lot of the comments that you shared and uh, we're finding the Thank same you. thing uh, as we are Part of what we're wanting to do is very related uh, to what you're working on, Daniel. Um, We want to build a local grain economy. And what we're finding as we talk with farmers and growers in this area, um, you know, we, we first, you know, started looking for where we would be able to source local grains. And there really is not a existing market uh, for farmers to go to or for buyers to go to to be able to source you know local grains for the most part we, we do have a couple of couple of farms in the areas that uh, that are supplying restaurants um, and some of those 
have some pretty interesting varieties, uh, things that are local to this area, typically have higher yield, and uh, introduce a different flavor than what you would get. And what we, you know, we make whiskey, and whiskey is made from grains. Right, um, right. And uh, so I really do appreciate, uh, uh, Daniel, just the difficulties that uh, farmers face what we're finding is that we really need to be able to lock arms with other buyers of grains. So that could be bakers, millers. Uh, in, a, in a sort of co-op sort of situation? Very much so, yeah. And uh, not, not only as an individual you know, buyer and seller, but as creating a market that you know, when you grow a new grain for its flavor— you don't know exactly what you're going to find at the end of the day, right? right? right. That's a whole season of investment for a farmer. Right. And there needs to be a lot of options for where that grain can find, you know, can be used. It could, you know, some grains that, ten, that tend to have higher protein right. uh, are better for bread, uh, whereas we are more interested in starch because that's what we use for making alcohol. Right, right. Daniel, do you kind of help uh, folks as well um, identify demand and, and kind of guide their practices in what they should be growing, or do you, do you kind of leave that up to the market? Well, uh, as economists, we really like <laughs> leaving things up to the market. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I don't think that any self-respecting economist would really like to do interventions. Right, right. We believe that the most permanent thing is a temporary program. Um, so, uh, <laughs> but going back, I'm sorry about the communication issue we okay. had recently. But uh, to to answer your question, in terms of small farmer, to to give you an operational definition. Yeah. So uh, anybody who is uh, producing agricultural or food products, and that is uh, billing less than a quarter million dollars a year is classified as a small farmer. Okay. So according to, to the USDA standards, then anybody who is billing less than $250,000 per year, those are what, what, is con- what are considered small farmers. So right. that can be either people who are growing ethnic uh, food for example, and uh, the people who are growing okra, which is specific for uh, an ethnic group, uh, people who have who are hobby farmers, they also fall in that category. All those who sell through um, farmers markets, most of the people who sell through farmers markets, they fall into this category too. So, is it so possible, it, Daniel? Is it possible that that a hobby farmer? I mean, I think that that's interesting because I see a lot of gardens around Austin, and um, are there a lot of hoops to jump through if if they say, "Hey, I've figured out tomatoes, I've, I've figured out something," you know, <laughs> and yeah. and I could supply one restaurant. And um, are there a lot of hoops to go through to to actually make that uh, viable? Jump. Yes, yeah, they are. They are um, from the technical side and from the marketing side of both of them. I mean, because the agricultural production, like any other business, is a multifaceted industry. It's a multifaceted problem, right. and I believe that Chris is very much more equipped than I would ever be to speak about the hurdles that one has to jump to establish a business. Right. So, uh, in in that sense, then of course. Um, there's several hurdles to go through. There's uh, from the production side in terms of area, rotation of crops and management of the crops themselves, permits that you have to get to for water use inside uh, the city if you're within the city limits, uh, and those kinds of things from the production side itself. And then from the, from the marketing side itself, then, then you also have some other hurdles there, like uh, what we talked during the, the training program, talking about, okay, what kind of packaging uh, and labeling and traceability do you need to, to be able to supply uh, yeah. to, to your consumers so that they, 
so that they're comfortable with it and they don't feel like they're taking an unnecessary risk. Right. Because jumping on, on something that Chris mentioned, I mean, when you are trying to develop a new product, in this case, a NAC product, uh, you cannot just do a dry run of, oh, I'm just going to plant uh, 10 seeds of this and see how this goes. You right. Actually, there's uh, several overhead costs involved to, to launching something new, to trying something new. So a lot of this sharing of risk is also part of what, uh, what the AgriLife Extension Service uh, helps with, you know, trying to help uh, growers and buyers to, to come to terms with those things. Are there any, you know, are there any, um, Daniel, are there any uh, kind of uh, really innovative thinking models that are taking place, something like the co-op model? Or, you know, I feel like we're very proud of our farmers markets here in Austin. And I think that that is a very successful model for small growers. Are, are there any are there any other kind of things that are being played with on that yeah, end? Actually, yeah. not, not so much in terms of consolidating buyer or seller power but more along the lines of doing more with less. Okay. So uh, greenhouses, uh, for example, and having aquaponics, which is the use of growing fish at the same time while growing hortic- small horticulture. So doing more with less is actually part of the trend that you're looking at in terms of small growers instead of small farmers, because then you can still have a small operation and, and get more out of it. Right, right. Um, well, it, it, this is this is wonderful work. I'm I'm really excited about it because um, you know I, I really think that this is the future of of you know hooking up uh, buyers and local farms to get the highest quality you know, uh, produce and and products with the least amount of uh, lag time. I mean, you talk about one of the things that you'll be talking about is the. Um, is the, the storage and uh, delivery and storage and and sometimes with when it's coming from when when produce is coming from uh, you know like you say Arizona or California it, it's almost sometimes brought to very low temperatures and stored and and that uh, doesn't allow you to bring certain produce and and so certain vegetables are more delicate and and they need that local economy I mean that's the competitive advantage right that would be one of them yeah one, be of them, one of yeah, them and, right. and also the fact uh, a huge value of uh, of these relationship building is actually talking about it. Yeah, you know that you can sit down with your restaurant uh, buyer and ask him, like, really, what is it that you want? Like, how do you want it packaged? Does ten pound pack serve you well? Is this about the amount of of a product that you need for a night, for a busy night? How about the deliveries on Thursday? deliveries on Thursday, we want those to be bigger, smaller. And, and this is a huge advantage of being close enough to the market that right. you can actually do this. It's, that it's, there's a possibility that you can sit down and do this. Right. It's adults sitting down and talking about, about, about yeah, everything, yeah. right? <laughs> about everything. About everything. And if it's over a glass of wine, even better, right? <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Chris, you had something. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, just jump in to say, too, I mean, I think that that uh, interest and willingness uh, around storage and packaging and sizing and all those sort of things... Um, they're, they're really a, uh, a problem, you know, not just for sellers, but also for buyers. Like we look for yeah. uh, grains and we, we need to be able to store them. We, do, we don't typically store them in, in the city. Um, uh, and so, I mean, I think that uh, it's really a, a challenge that needs to be solved on both sides of right. in a really yeah. cooperative way. Yeah. 
Well, great. Um, Daniel, any, any final thoughts? Again, we'll mention that this workshop, uh, which is called the Market Ready Training, Selling to Restaurants for Local Growers, will be held at 9 a.m. next Monday. Uh, so it's 9 to noon on September 26th, which is next Monday, at the AgriLife Extension Office at 1600 B. Smith Road in Austin. Um, and if, if anybody has any questions about this, they, they can email me as well or uh, on this show, Mark Rayshap at koop.org. Uh, Daniel, any final thoughts before we let you go? Uh, they can also contact directly the uh, uh, Travis County office. Uh, Great. They'll be at 512-854-9600. Um, then they can contact Sue Carrasco and uh, she can gladly uh, RSVP their participation. Excellent. So, um, and open again to small growers, to local restaurants, but also to consumers who want to have their finger on the pulse of what is going on the agricultural side of Austin. Daniel, thank you so much and good luck with everything. You're welcome, Mike. Yeah. Thank okay. you for having me. Absolutely. Well, we're going to uh, thank you so much for uh, tuning in. This is another bottle down on Co op Radio. That was Daniel Chavez, who is an economist with the um, uh, Texas AM AgriLife Extension Service and uh, talking about a lot of things that are very important important in this day and age to uh, the economy of local produce. Uh, we normally talk about wine, but I want—I really wanted to highlight that because it's something, it's, it's a passion of mine that I think we really need to do better with. Um, it, we have live in the studio here, Chris Seals, who is owner and CEO of uh, Still Austin. And we're going to take a short break and we'll be back with Chris to talk about distilling whiskey and uh, having a small artisan distillery in, in, uh, in Austin and what that's like. Post-Prohibition, this is the first urban distillery in Austin, so stick with us. Okay, we're back. Thank you so much. This is Co-op Radio, K-O-O-P 91.7 FM and koop.org. Uh, we're live here in Austin talking about, um, we normally talk about wine in the wine industry, but today uh, we've been talking about the local agricultural economy and hooking up small uh, growers with uh, with local restaurants, and um, we always really root for the local restaurants here on Another Bottle Down and the local growers, the local wine community, and now uh, for sure the local distilled spirits uh, community, which is growing and growing along with our uh, artisanal and craft beer uh, industry. And so I'm, I'm very happy to welcome on Chris Seals, who is the co-founder and CEO of Still Austin. Thank you so much for being here, Chris. Thanks, Mark. Uh, very happy to be here. I'm glad that you were able to chime in there with uh, Daniel and, and talk about some of the challenges that you have in getting uh, really unique grains uh, for your whiskeys, right? Uh, it is shocking. You know, when we when we first started looking for grains from this area, we found that the best place to source grains was 300 miles away yeah. at a grain elevator. Wow. And those grains could have come from Europe, from Canada, or from anywhere. Right. We had no control over what was going to go into our whiskey. Wow. So give us the introduction. So um, you're, 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 you're focusing on whiskey um, and, and distilling here in Austin. And this is the first time that since Prohibition, if I'm uh, correct, That's right. that, yeah. that Austin has within the city boundaries a, a distillery. What, what got you uh, the bug to do this? Yeah, so um, we, you know, we're, we're kind of a group of friends, all local Austinites. We wanted to build something very special here. Uh, I kind of got started in this because of my dad. Uh, he asked yeah. me 
to help him start a whiskey distillery. And I said, why not? Who, who wouldn't want to start a whiskey distillery with your dad? Right. And so... Yeah, um, great bonding. Yeah, yeah no, we thought, I thought the same. I didn't even know if we'd actually do it. But I thought we would have a good time going to all the whiskey distilleries, tasting all of their spirits, and just having a good time. Right, right. And so... Uh, my, my dad and I started going and we, we started to really see a lot of different things and it really kind of began to shape kind of what we thought about what whiskey is, what is a whiskey that would kind of speak to Austin, right. uh, what is craft in whiskey, uh, a lot of, you know, 18 distilleries in Kentucky and Tennessee produce about eight, you know, 95% of the whiskey that is, uh, made in the United States. And so, we, you know, craft spirits right. and, and, and in particular craft whiskey is very young yeah. uh, and still trying to find its way. So we had to ask a lot of questions about that, but you know, with still Austin, uh, still Austin whiskey company, we are a little bit rare when okay. it comes yeah. to you know, kind of as, as far as, uh, there's different types of distilleries. Uh, we are a grain to glass distillery. Right. And, uh, what that means is that we, uh, we mill our grains when they arrive, uh, right. we, we source locally and, and we mill, we mash, we, uh, f- uh, ferment the grains and kind of, we make our beer, then right. we distill it, uh, in our, in our still, we barrel it and we bottle it all on site. All on site. So we do everything from really, truly from grain to glass. Right. And we, we really wanted to create something that would appeal to uh, not only uh, like a bourbon connoisseur who's you know, looking for something different and interesting, right. uh, but also to a whiskey novice, somebody who's never had whiskey before. Right. They're not even sure if they like it. And, you know, just like wines, uh, whiskey and bourbon can be very intimidating. Right. So we wanted to make the whole process very open source where everybody could be part of it. Right. And uh, for us, you know, creating a local Austin whiskey meant that it is handmade here in Austin from local grains that are sourced from Texas farmers. Wow, cool. And that's important for folks in Austin, you know, and, and, and not, not just, you know, not just for you, but for the consumer base here. Absolutely. Um, I, I want to go back to the grain to glass thing because, um, uh, okay, that makes sense. Grain to glass, you yep. know, what, what are the alternatives? So how do, how do distilleries kind of get around that or not pertain to that? And I, and I always make the, the analogy between, um, wineries that, uh, not all wineries are the little chateau on top of the vineyard and all, and the whole vineyard, uh, gets harvested and brought to the chateau and, and may, and the wine is made there. Actually, that model is pretty rare in the wine industry. You know, you might have vineyards all over the place you might buy bulk wine you might um so so how does it work in the in the distilled spirits industry so uh i think to really explain that i need to step back just one step and kind of tell a little history story cool um so you know prior to prohibition there was a lot of whiskey that was made and consumed in the united states right uh a lot of that was not aged in barrels it was a clear whiskey that was uh, enjoyed for its flavor as a standalone product. Right. And differentiate that from moonshine? Uh, really, moonshine is a term that kind of came about, and it has a pretty negative connotation right. yeah. because it's generally seen as low quality. Right. Uh, it's something that's made quickly, to m- mainly to be thrown in a barrel, hoping that it will taste better over time, right. which has been the business model of most of the distilleries in Kentucky and Tennessee that have you know really focused on 
you know, in some ways creating a uh, barrier to entry uh, for other people to be able to uh, enter the whiskey industry. You know, it's a, it's, it's difficult to wait 10 years for your yeah. product to age right. economically. And so, uh, uh, but prior to Prohibition, that wasn't the case. And, you know, a lot of whiskey sat barrels uh, during Prohibition. And uh, then uh, uh, aged whiskey kind of came into vogue. Right. Um, but, you know, when, when we started looking at, you know, what would be an authentic Austin-based whiskey distillery, uh, we were really, uh, it's, it's unfortunate, really. Uh, you know, like uh, craft spirits is so young. Yeah. It can be anything but so many distilleries are focused on copying the model of Kentucky and Tennessee right. uh, with very little independence. Which and is so, what? Just to give listeners an idea. Re, yeah. So the way that that's done technically is there are distillery. There's one large distillery, MGP of Indiana, that produces a massive amount of whiskey that is sold to many different craft distillers. Mm-hmm. The, that whiskey is then uh, blended and bottled by those craft distillers right. and sold, but it all comes from the same distillery and generally from the same grain base, same fermentation process. And as a result, a lot of craft whiskeys taste a lot alike, right, right. not a lot of variety in, uh, in, in, in that model. And so, so you might say that the time in barrel in, in where it takes on the caramel and the toast of the barrel that almost... That changes things, and, and and I don't necessarily want to say it hides any sort of, um, you know, uh, mass market sort of spirit, but um, but in your opinion, it, it, it might. You can be more opinion than I can. Right? Well, I, I mean, I think that when we think about what what is craft, right. so, you know, a lot of the authenticity of bourbon and whiskey has been linked to aging in barrels, right? Sure. Right. Yeah. Um, which is a strength of mega producers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but when we look at like what's the future of craft distilling, uh, mm. we see maybe you can kind of think of it as existing on two axes. Okay. Uh, on one axis, it's sort of like wine. There's terroir. Right. Yeah. You know, if, if we think about you know wines that come from grapes grown in Texas, they have a different taste than from, say, uh, the Columbia Valley or from Napa or from Lodi. Any, where, wherever they come from, the right. variety of grape and the, the soil in which it's grown, the climate, all of those things can, obviously, you know a lot more about this than I do, but they contribute to the terroir of the I'm gonna, wine. I'm going to make a good analogy here in a second, but continue that, that, that thought. Right. And so uh, terroir is kind of one axis, if you will. The other axis that we think about with craft is the making process. Okay. How, what is the technique that's used right. uh, in making whiskey? And we, we kind of look at, say, for instance, a baker, um, a, a small artisan bread baker understands that the selection of grain right. plays a role. The way in which it's milled plays right. a big role. Uh, how long it rises, the temperature at which it's baked and the, the time, all of those things give differentiation and they're all technique based, right. Right? right? And they all bring out things that are, they, you know, we, we find that things that are locally grown and fresh milled have more expressive flavor profiles. And right. that is clearly something that you can really enjoy in fresh made bread that is grown from your area. Right. Um, and so when, uh, when, we, when we look at kind of what is the future of craft, we, we really see still Austin. And uh, for, for us, terroir is a big part of that. Cool, yeah. We want locally sourced 
grains to kind of tell our story. Yeah. And there's, there's different elements of terroir for us. There's not only the grains, but also the water and the climate. Right. Um, and that kind of plays to the different varieties of grains that we have in Texas. We were not limited by just one climate. We've got a really broad uh, varieties of climate, everything from the panhandle to uh, 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 the valley. You really have a lot of different types of grains. There's five different grains that can go into whiskey, and all of them can be grown in Texas. Yeah. And so really, it gives us a lot of uh, kind of a, w- without really having to look to aging, which is, another craft in and of itself, right. um, we, we have a lot of uh, opportunity to really cre- create something that stands independently um, just looking at terroir and technique. Right, right. Um, if you're just joining us, I'm with Chris Seals here uh, live. We're live at the co-op studios, and we're talking about, um, I think, a very interesting link between uh, what you're doing on the, the distilling and uh, a focus on where the grains are coming from and maybe heirloom varieties. Um, and we're try- And I always love to bring things into the wine industry. I'm going to make this analogy of um, what you're talking about really, really reminds me of the champagne industry. For hundreds of years, the large champagne houses that have dominated the champagne industry have just said, uh, forget about the particulars. Don't worry about how we're making it. Don't worry about um, what grapes are in it. We're not going to tell you the percentage of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and Pinot Meunier. Um, Just know that... um, the aging in our cellars is what makes it unique. And so, you know, basically, like, there's too many variables in here. Uh, Don't worry about it. We got it. Just know our house style and that you like our house style. And now there's a really large movement of growers that are saying, no, wait a minute, this tiny little plot of land deserves to be kept out of the major blend. And then they're saying, yes, there is terroir. There is this idea that this small plot of land is unique. And then we're going to do it with maybe without uh, really, really extended aging. And, uh, and and they're also playing with different techniques such as barrel aging of, of, of the champagne, which is not usually done, et cetera, et cetera. So I think what you're saying, it really, it really, it reminds me of the champagne industry. Um, so, so when you go to terroir, give us an idea of what still Austin is playing with on the grains. I mean, whiskey has to be fifty-one percent. I'm sorry, bourbon has to be fifty-one percent corn, right? That's right, and, and, that's right. and not a hundred percent. Fifty, I think it's fifty-one to ninety-nine percent corn, or something like that. Fifty-one um, percent corn, and then the remainder can be wheat, barley, rye, or sorghum. Okay, and so I don't necessarily think. So, are you doing what? What are what are what are the um, proportions that you're kind of mostly dealing with? Right now, we're still in a real experimental phase, okay. uh, and even like within those, you you don't know. Corn is sort of that, that's it. There's a lot of different types of corn. Right. Uh, you know, I was having um, a dinner. This is going back a couple of months. Uh, one of my uh, favorite restaurants, Odd Duck. They have a Me too. red. It's so delicious. <laughs> um, they have a red corn that is grown by Richardson Farms, which is about twenty miles from here. It's called Bloody Butcher. Okay. And uh, Bloody Butcher, uh, it, it creates a very smooth whiskey when it's distilled. Wow. Um, and that really is very different from the yellow dent corn that's common and and kind of it's a least expensive, most readily available okay. commodity uh, corn that is typically used in uh, 
in, in whiskeys that come from Kentucky and Tennessee. And so it, you, you can look at uh, not only red corn, but blue corn, uh, blue hoppy corn. There's a green Mexican corn that is also has its own uh, flavor profile. And what, what we really think about is being able to give Austinites more choices right, uh, right. when it comes to flavor. Uh, we think about being able to give farmers more markets uh, to be able to bring uh, their unique varieties that they can grow right. well in their area and, yeah. and, and typically at a higher yield and to get a better price. But ultimately for us, what that's all really about, you know, creating this green economy is about flavor, right? being able to have more flavor to choose from locally. Yeah. And so, and so once you, you, you know, you bring the corn in, you, you, you do the fermentation and then you go into this, the distilling and then afterwards you have this clear spirit and, and, it, is it how obvious is it when you're tasting it, you know, the red corn distillate versus, you know, some other corns? I mean, how obvious is it? Very obvious. Yeah. And there's, there's like we were saying before, there's different elements that are kind of overlapping. There's terroir and there's technique. Yeah. Um, on the technique side, let me talk a little bit about kind of what, what's our technique? What, yeah, do we, what do we kind of look at? So uh, we had a little bit of an interesting story. When you start going to look for, you know, someone to help you design a grain to glass distillery, yeah. there isn't anyone. Right. Uh, Prohibition has wiped out that tradition. State laws made it impossible for distilleries to kind of grow up until maybe a few years ago. And so uh, you, you really did, there's kind of a loss of knowledge uh, and art uh, in the making process. And so we went looking for somebody who had a lot of experience. And who we found was a fellow by the name of Michael Delavante. And Michael is a Jamaican guy who ran uh, the largest rum distillery in, in Jamaica, and he's 85 years old. And is wow. The we think he's probably the oldest working distiller alive today. Yeah. And uh, we wanted to, we talked to Mike about, we really want. Jimmy Russell, I think, has claimed that position, but I we know. might have to do some research on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh Michael, I mean, he, he, he is Jamaican, so right, right. Uh, maybe in, <laughs> in, uh, in uh, uh, maybe differences by country. But right, right, uh, right. The, the thing that we talked with Mike about was we really wanted to be able to bring out uh, a, a flavor that reflects our local region, is clean, right. and, 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 uh, and really uh, stands, stands out as, as independent from what you would typically find at any other distillery. Right. And so he designed a very special still for us. And that's what our na we're named after that still, still Austin. Right. Um, and that traditionally a bourbon still in Kentucky has three plates for rectification of the spirit. And those three plates are what is used to really craft the spirit that they make and in general they try to make as much as they can as fast as they can to put it into barrels right. and so those three plates are not a big focus area but it is a very important part of the technique and <clears throat> what do you mean by is it in the column the three 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 plates in the column which kind of give it the 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 height of the column right so there's fractional distillation right. of the alcohol so you're separating if you make beer there's you know a certain amount of water and there's a small amount of alcohol inside right, right, of that right. solution and so with a still you're separating the alcohol out yeah. and with each time each time that uh, the alcohol condenses and then is uh, reheated and, uh, and redistilled, you, you purify the alcohol, essentially, right. that you are creating, uh, that you're separating out from the, the rest of the beer. And so uh, with a three-plate still, 
mm-hmm. you distill essentially three times. Okay. We have a 12 plate still, wow. which offers us a lot more control and flexibility over what characteristics of the grain we want to bring forth. Right. And so that really kind of gives us a lot more uh, control, I'd say, than a typical distillery might. Right. But we also wanted to be able to tell a story of locally grown grains that you can taste, yeah. not just something that's a, a story that we've kind of created or a marketing story, but something that you can really, you, you smell it when you when, from the nose uh, through the finish. Right. And so all of those characteristics, a lot of them, um, are controlled at that element of the technique. Yeah. It's interesting that you brought over a, Jam- a Jamaican distiller who uh, probably the, the bulk of what he's done throughout his career has been to uh, focus on the, the clear rum, right? Whereas if you had brought somebody from bourbon country, they would all be about the, the aging process and, and the architecture of the rickhouse and all of that kind of stuff that, that is not really concerning you. Absolutely. But it is kind of interesting that uh, I've toured a lot of Kentucky distilleries with Michael Delavante, and uh, <laughs> it's hilarious going with him because he'll, he'll point out things that uh, went wrong in the 70s or 80s uh, at that particular distillery and how he was involved in the you know, kind of troubleshooting wow. uh, from that. It's a small, small world, uh, as we've learned, <laughs> of, uh, of folks that make uh, distilled spirits. And uh, they rely on on one another, and so right. So we, we do have to mention. So um, folks can get more information from your website stillaustin.com. Uh, we have to mention that you're not quite open yet, and um, uh, but there's been um, there's been some murmuring that I've been uh, catching, uh, uh, you know, with my my ear to the ground. And so there's so it's getting close, right? What what what's kind of the the idea there? We want to open this winter. Okay, great. And uh, one of the things that we want to do, still Austin is an urban distillery for right. Austinites. Sure. And we, we want to be a place where you can learn about the craft of distilling and yeah. even participate in it. Cool. Uh, one of our things that we're going to be offering is an opportunity to distill your own barrel or DYOB as we call it. <laughs> um, and uh, so because it's such an interesting process. And so few people have had an opportunity to try it out. Right, right. That might be very attractive to local restaurants as well uh, for, you know, this whole concept of, you know, um, they could have something, a house uh, style that, that they do to their specifications. Yeah. So. We think it'd be interesting to just about anybody. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. I mean, it's wonderful that, that you're doing this. How, um, how is, you know, there, there is a craft and, and local distilled uh, spirit community. Is, is, is it a welcoming community? And, and I know that the, the local wine industry is very collaborative. Um, is, do you get the same sort of thing or is it still so new that people are trying to, you know, um, really claim their territory, et cetera? Yeah, it's a mix, right? Um, because there are, there are very few people that are grain to glass. And so, you know, we're, we're one of those folks. And so we kind of lock arms easily with them. Right. Um, there, there are large distilleries in Texas. There are small. Mm-hmm. Um, they have different concerns and different uh, worries. And the, and the making process is very different. Right. And so a lot of times the place where you really find community and connection is when you're doing it in a similar way and, and for similar reasons. Um, and so we find that people that are focused on uh, local, uh, they're focused on the environment, right. and they're focused on flavor that is authentic, we have yeah. a lot in common with them. Absolutely. 
Well, wonderful. Um, we are going to take a short break and hear from one of our underwriters, and uh, and we'll be a bit back with Chris Seals, who is founder and CEO of Still Austin. You can find more information there at stillaustin.com uh, concerning opening dates, etc. And you can always get more information about co-op on uh, on our website, koop.org. So we're going to take a short break and uh, stay tuned. Okay, we're back. Thank you so much for joining us and tuning in and uh, and being here for the conversation. Uh, earlier in the show, we had uh, Daniel Chavez, who is uh, with an economist with the AgriLife Extension Program, and he is putting on a workshop for local uh, growers, small growers, as well as local restaurants to um, uh, mix, to match them up to see if, if there can be collaborations going on, as well as interested folks from the community. So that is the market-ready training, selling to restaurants for local growers uh, from the AgriLife Extension Office. And uh, live in the studio right now is Chris Seals, who is co-founder and CEO at Still Austin. Um, and you, you can get more information uh, about Still Austin at stillaustin.com. And I, Chris, there's a there's a really cool video I saw somewhere. Where is that video where you walk folks through the distillery? Yeah, you can find it at stillaustin.com, okay, or you can check us out on Facebook uh, or in Instagram, or we're uh, on all on, and Twitter as well. We're on all th- all okay. those platforms. I think I might have seen it on Facebook, um, but but you you, you show this. St- I think that the still is being wheeled in there, and you uh-huh. show some of the tanks and. Yep. Uh, and, and it's, it's a lot of, of cool stuff that you have going on. Um, I'm looking forward to, to checking you out when it opens. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah. The, um, so, okay, we talked about this kind of grain-to-glass concept where not a whole lot of craft distillers are doing that, and that's a real big focus for you. Um, we talked about some of the grains that you were doing and how they you know, changed the profile. I, I do want to tell a little anecdote that I had when I was, um, I, I was in a little bourbon tour in, outside of Louisville, and um, and you know, we smelled a lot of fermentations and as they were going on and a lot of them just smelled the same and they try and rush through them, right? Like three days. But, uh, at four roses, they actually, um, did a, a more of an extended fermentation where you could really smell the difference. And, mm-hmm. and, and I thought that that was remarkable. And, and so are there any like really far out things that you're doing? Uh, I mean, as far as, as far as the, the beer making goes and absolutely, yeah. um, we like to collaborate, um, and we have a lot to learn from brewers. Uh, brewing is a big part of whiskey making. Sure. Yeah. And uh, the secondary fermentation that they use at Four Roses does bring out a lot of fruity flavors and diff- different notes that uh, uh, can't be uh, created except for through that longer fermentation process. And selection of yeast also plays a role. Um, but uh, we, we also look at uh, smoking um, oh, and, uh, and you'll the, do that in house too. The, or? we like to collaborate. Okay. And so, uh, <laughs> we have a lot of, uh, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's obviously been uh, here in Austin some uh, concern over how much barbecue there is and how much smoke it creates, um, <laughs> if, uh, uh, kind of going back uh, to last year. But uh, we we see um, our local uh, culinary wow. scene as very inspirational. Uh, we think that Austin has uh, quite possibly the best food and beverage scene in the United States. And we don't want uh, whiskey to exist sort of in a silo, if you will. Right, right, um, right. So, um, but, uh, so we, we would like to collaborate with, uh, uh, with, with people who smoke 
uh, other things like meat and, wow. and uh, uh, vegetables. That is amazing. Um, we would like to collaborate with brewers mm-hmm. um, that uh, you know have their own perspective on the brewing process and the kinds of beers that they make. Right. Um, we. You know, we, we have our own milling needs and we have our own mill and we really feel that fresh milled grain is very important to the expression of the flavor profile of the grain. Right. Um, but uh, we also like partnering with uh, local uh, mill, mills here. Uh, there's a local stone mill, Barton Creek, uh, that we partner with. He makes um, flour for artisan bread. Uh, we make, uh, we, we use the same input, but for making whiskey right. and it kind of, you know, for some grains may be more appropriate for making bread, uh, for a particular harvest, uh, and, uh, some may be more appropriate for making whiskey. Right. And so just depending on the protein and, and, uh, starch balance between the two. And so we see a lot of opportunities to gain inspiration and, uh, collaborate, wow. uh, and, uh, become part of, uh, this awesome food and beverage scene that we have. That's awesome. So, uh, um, that's great. And, uh, we just have a few more minutes left and, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think a real source of pride, what you're talking about this community. And, and I know that a lot of, um, a lot of, of the brewers are also collaborating with the local wine industry, uh, for barrels and whatnot. Are, are you, are you planning on doing something like that? We would love, uh, <laughs> for all of the winemakers that are maybe listening today, we would love for one of you uh, to work with us, uh, or a couple of you, on making a grappa. Uh, we don't. There's, there's hardly any Texas grappa made, and uh, our still is appropriate for it. Yeah. Um, well, great. So, so not open yet. Open in a, in, in in a few months here, winter. Um, what's the plan to the the product line that's going to be launched? Is it all going to be whiskeys? Is there is there going to be any other? Um, are there going to be any other categories that you're coming out with? All we make is whiskey. Okay, and only whiskey. Uh, we um, we're going to start very small, uh, and we want people to come and give us some input. Yeah, we don't want to be just a whiskey on the shelf. Right. We want you to come to Still Austin and help us see it being made, kick back in the whiskey garden, and just have a good time. Right. And so we're we're a bit more than just a you know a. A manufacturer. We're also a, a place where you can taste whiskey and, and discover right. um, kind of everything about the craft. Well, very cool. Well, um, we are just about out of time and uh, going to pass the, the, the reins off to Tracy Schultz. Uh, he's all uh, getting ready in the in the back. So, um, Chris, thank you so much for for being here on another bottle down. I, I've really you, enjoyed. Mark. I've enjoyed the links with the wine industry because I think that what you're doing is similar in a lot of senses to our quest in the wine industry to explore the terroir, to explore that you know grapes really come from a unique place, and and that the, the consuming public should know about that. And um, and so I, I wish you the best of luck on that. I can't wait to have you out. <laughs> so um, great. You've, you've been listening to another Bottle Down on Co-op Radio. I wanted to thank everybody once again for uh, their, their generous support during our membership drive. It was a big success. Um, we had a lot of fun on this show. We had some, some quirky DJs and some quirky um, uh, things, uh, some spirited tastings uh, of wine and all kinds of crazy stuff. And, and it's really something that I'm happy that we can do here on Co-op Radio. Uh, if you've missed any part of this episode or any 
past episode of this show, Another Bottle Down, you can go to koop.org slash anotherbottledown.com. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, koop.org slash anotherbottledown. Uh, and also, we are moving to our two-week live streaming at uh, Radio Free America. So more information about that on the co-op website. Uh, that does us for now, and stay tuned for Tracy Schultz and Remix, and we will see you next week. Uh, drink tons of great wine, enjoy it responsibly, uh, responsibly and, and definitely enjoy your friends and your loved ones. See you next week.